Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Pie. Let me doing okay. This episode is about the moon. Does anyone own the moon? Can we go live on the moon? Does anyone want to go and live on the moon? It's also kind of really about primitive accumulation and land ownership. Oh, and I briefly hung out with an enchanted giant called Moldhead of the Ancient Wood. Oh, there he is now. Hello, friends. Hiya, mate. Thank you to all of you who support the lads on Patreon. It's really kind and they really appreciate it. Thank you. Stop, Moldhead, you're embarrassing me, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> right, okay, on with the end. Do you ever think you'll own land? I could maybe, if I really put my mind to it, acquiring some kind of uh, squatter's rights on maybe like mm. a patch of disused turf. In like some legitimate British wilderness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you get squatters rights for like a bit of a park or or does it have to be like a disused building? Can I get squatters rights for a tree or a cave? Mm. Oh, actually, I think maybe, do you know how they used to be hermits? Yeah. But like my understanding of hermits was that they were legitimate. It was legitimately about trying to completely remove yourself from society and live almost Mm -hmm. like stylites or um, aesthetic um, about communion with God and living an ascetic lifestyle. But actually, did you know that under the Victorian eras, hermits just became like a decoration, like garden gnomes? Yeah. If your garden, like you had a, a cave, you could just encourage a hermit to live in it and you could look at them. <laughs> yeah, it was the equivalent of like a fancy where those Victorian landowners would build like a fake castle. Yeah. There's this one in North Wales. You can see it off the A55 going to Colwyn Bay. And it's like a little castle outpost thing on a hill. It's not on top of the hill. It's halfway down the hill. Oh. So... Yeah, this is an incredibly defensible fortification, provided they come from that way. (laughs) If they come from the side of the hill, we're just not going to see. Yeah, really. It would not surprise me. It would not surprise me to find out if a hermit was allowed to dwell in there. Yeah, the idea that hermits were like encouraged as just a piece of beautification—it's bad and funny. It's one of those things where it's like clearly quite disgusting because possibly a lot of hermits, their only choice is to live in a cave. But something about a social (laughs) ill happening in the Victorian era means I don't really have any responsibility to feel sad about it. (laughs) (laughs) Tragedy plus time. Yeah, they're just like a piece of topiary or something. Or maybe combined, you know, if they've got big hair, kind of shave it into a dolphin shape. You could probably do both, yeah. I'm not sure whether you own the hermit. I'm not sure exactly how. Yeah, it's a hermit like a surf where it's like they're attached to the land. I think maybe the hermit can be evicted if it fails to jig or cavort sufficiently within a fortnight. (laughs) (laughs) Or they look sad. You catch them looking sad. (laughs) Like two aristocrats going, yeah, my hermit's depressed. I just don't know how to like wedge him out. I don't know whether to improve him, cheer him up, but it's a bit yeah. of a sunk cost fallacy yeah, or get no, a new one. I'm not putting the resources into cheering the hermit up. There's plenty of hermits out there who want a cave. It is a cave <laughs> owner's market out there. It's not my responsibility to cheer up the hermit. 
aristocrats talking about a hermit like people talk about their old phone yeah aristocrats talking about like it's just a novelty old car (laughs) but like i think squatters rights is if you're on private land and you squat on private land i think if it's like the commons but the commons there's no commons right I think there is a very particular law that applies to some places in the Highlands, mm. which is, I don't know if it's the commons per se, but there's definitely, you're allowed to like go and camp and live up in the Highlands just for extended periods of time, which isn't a right mm. that's extended to any area of Ireland or the rest of the UK. Unless you do it during COVID lockdown, then a police drone will hover over you and taser you. Yeah, it tends to be with the police that the further away you get from built up urban areas, the more illegal your exercise becomes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the more attractive you are to a sniper's bullet. Yeah, we cannot allow you to give COVID to a beaver or a badger or a squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) They are the true innocence of the global pandemic. It's hard, isn't it? Because land is very, very expensive and there's a finite amount of it. And Mm -hmm. pretty much all land on the planet has been privatised. Like the commons is is just gone. And we see that as like normal. And almost everything that looks like it's just this untouched area of natural beauty is like shadow owned by a million different trusts, crisscrossing borders (laughs) of private ownership that you can't see, but completely affect your ability to like sit there for too (laughs) long or even like film something on your phone. It's now and impossible to find out who truly truly owns things when i was doing like a filmmaking challenge we got a uh one of the guest speakers was from um i can't remember just just a big british film company and they talked about just how hard it is to get to location scout because everything is owned by someone and the person who would deal with giving you permission is just, there's no receptionist, no one cares. There's no, like, it's just caught in admin bureaucracy. So if you want to film anything, you more or less can't. So the actual small, there are just these small areas of Britain which have, like, been cleared that people know they'd give permission for filmmakers. And so just these tiny bits have to represent huge areas of the UK. That's why like a lot of time, (laughs) if people want to film like a forest scene or something, it's always somewhere else in Europe. Loads of things just aren't filmed in the UK because it just gets passed around like different shell companies going, I don't know who has permission to let you film here. The only thing you can film in the UK is stuff in Welsh quarries. Yeah, that big quarry that the Power Rangers always fight in. (laughs) That represents the entire outdoors. (laughs) so all um land is privatized Mm. but it once was not and the process of it being accumulated and made private and enclosed was uh, a really important thing in capitalism both internally with the enclosure of the common land and externally with imperialism do you know where we haven't enclosed no space Oh, space has not been enclosed. Can't enclose it. It's massive space. Wasn't there a, a particular like disarmament treaty regarding space? That I think the 1967 stopped- Outer Space Treaty. Okay, right. Of course, of course, you'll have a, a dock open. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which is agreed by most countries on Earth, basically says that outer space is not subject to national appropriation. It's based on Antarctica. So Antarctica, like no one owns Antarctica. Yeah. Um, people do own the Arctic. Yeah, the Arctic is divided up across loads of crisscrossing lines. 
But it's only mm. really used for, to my knowledge, it's just used for research, right? I think people are drilling oil. I don't know, but yeah, I'll okay, take a while, guess. Yeah. Someone's drilling oil. Under um, the guise of researching a seal or a narwhal. <laughs> <laughs> we're just trying to make After a huge I- narwhal's tusk, but we're sending it directly into the crust of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've disguised your oil drill as a narwhal yeah. pointed at the earth. And we're trying to conserve uh, that narwhal. Can't let it get sick. Yeah. Why is this narwhal 60 foot tall and why does it have ExxonMobil tattooed on it? <laughs> yeah. Why has it got the Shell logo tattooed on its arms, uh, arms, on its eyes? <laughs> and it's oh, I'm just sorry. constantly um, jutting into the earth. I'm sorry, you're going to have to shut this narwhal down because we figured out it's actually just a drill and it's not a real narwhal. Ten years later, ExxonMobil have genetically modified a real huge narwhal to drill oil. <laughs> Do you know what? That would be the best like future dystopia where you create a creature that needs to dig oil out of the ground and then you create a massive like <laughs> WWE wildlife fund around conserving it and helping them repopulate <laughs> the earth. <laughs> yeah. Or if you don't let it if you don't let it drink the oil and secrete it into our trucks, you are actually abusing animal rights. Yeah. You you're you're condemning gotcha. these things to start yeah, absolute gotcha. <laughs> We genetically modified a gotcha. <laughs> so Antarctica has not been pillaged for resources. Partly, there's numerous reasons it hasn't been pillaged for resources, uh, but partly because it is almost effectively a commons. Because mm-hmm. you can only pillage if you can privatise what you're pillaging, right? There's no point in going to pillage something and then every country on the earth can actually say, well, actually, technically, we have a share of that. So you've got to, you can't. whatever you've pillaged, you've got to now distribute across every country. Yeah. Not a great um, pillage. But then, so the Outer Space Treaty says that about space as well. So hypothetically, if a mandatory redistribution party uh, obtained an asteroid, we build a space narwhal, blast into space and get our narwhal to just drill inside an asteroid to get the liquid platinum mm-hmm. Pepsi Max or whatever's inside it. Yeah, pep- the, uh, um, the now defunct Pepsi Lime Twist. <laughs> yeah. and, um, that couldn't be ours because everyone collectively owns space's commons, right? Okay, That's what the so, Outer Space so, Treaty so says. The, the Outer Space Treaty, it isn't just like space, it's also just everything beyond the limits of our planet. So if we found a resource that could be harvested from the inside of the sun that has communally owned, if we find a resource on Pluto that's communally owned, just everything. What it says is it's not subject to national appropriation. That's the specific thing it says. Yeah. So this is a bit of a grey area. So there's, so, there's so a non-national piece- corporation could actually go in there. You know, the Weyland-Yutani Corporation can actually do what they like. <laughs> so there's another treaty called the 1979 Moon Treaty, which specifically says that no one can own any part of space. Right. right. However, for obvious reasons, most countries did not sign that treaty because that one makes it explicit. Yeah. So that one says no one can own any part of space, whereas Outer Space Treaty says anything in outer space is not subject to national appropriation. The Outer Space Treaty doesn't mention corporations or individual people. Do you think that's why global markets became so such a, a thing. The idea that we've allowed the market economy just to, to move between countries quite fluidly is to allow these new supranational countries to take over space. Was this all perhaps one long running jump <laughs> towards space colonization? Uh, well, this is so colonization, you're talking about space colonization. So, key part of colonization is privatizing land, right? And we haven't colonized space in that sense yet. Like the moon. So one of the things in the Outer Space Treaty is the stuff you send out is still yours. So if our, our narwhal was on the asteroid mm-hmm. drilling Pepsi, that would still be our narwhal. We may not have rights to the Pepsi. Oh, okay. But that so would you still don't be our lose, narwhal. Space doesn't burn off the concept of ownership from anything you send out there. 
No, when the, no, when you're, the you're Apollo like, spacecraft lands again, loads of people just don't run and go, D- dibs. <laughs> Came <laughs> from space. Is space now. is the commons. Came from space, yeah. <laughs> that would also, imagine if there was a park that was still the commons and if you walked in it and came out of it, anything on your person, your rucksack becomes yeah. the commons. It's like it's like <laughs> the zone in like Tarkovsky. Anything that is touching <laughs> it just has the concept of ownership warped off it. Can be claimed by even an animal. <laughs> Sorry, lads, I can't play Magic the Gathering. Uh, I walked through the zone and, and all my cards were taken by a toad, and <laughs> rightfully so. <laughs> but no, it's not. It's not. So the Outer Space Treaty basically says not subject to national appropriation. What that means is technically there is no law that could stop us just going to live on Mars. I mean, the law was never as, what prevented me personally. <laughs> well, obviously there are other barriers. But legally, we'd be pretty sound to just go and set up a colony on Mars. Now, I don't want to do that because we've talked about this before and it can cause some real problems. Yeah. But if we went there, there would be no legal problem with us doing that. But then that becomes meaningless because private property is enforced by states. If you look at the Outer Space Treaty and it says it's not subject to national appropriation, but then you say, aha, you have not mentioned individuals or corporations. Yeah. Well, yes. Okay, an individual or a corporation could take an asteroid or land on the moon or land on Mars or something and say, this is ours now. But what are property rights enforced by? Property rights are enforced by states who have the police to enforce it within or armies to defend it from without. This idea of like a completely free market, it can't happen because the the market requires the state to guarantee property rights. Mm -hmm. When you say on the Outer Space Treaty, it's not subject to national appropriation, you can't really say, aha, it doesn't mention companies or the individual because individual property rights or corporate rights are enforced by states. I'm going to take a wild guess and suggest that Elon Musk, when he tries to fucking mine the asteroids around Earth or whatever, probably isn't going to accept my interpretation of these laws. And I'm not some, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Right? <laughs> I'm just applying the basic point that the state and the market are intimately linked. Forgetting about like these treaties, just the, the mm. sheer nature of like where it is and what it is, you would get a wild yeah. west regardless. Yeah. Regardless of what the treaty says, you would get a wild west and whoever's got enough lasers is going to have a majority of the resources. You're going to have a Pinkerton set up straight away that is able just to extract Mars rocks as much as it needs. So the wild west was the state moving across into Native American land mm-hmm. and accumulating it, turning it from the commons or land that was conceived as privately owned by the Native Americans, because it's to an extent a bit of mythologizing to say that they had no concept of private property. But basically they were moving across and accumulating and saying, this is ours now. Right? Yeah. That hasn't happened with space. Just like Antarctica, where there's a legal wall around Antarctica and a legal wall around space, which to, in effect says, this is the commons. Um, now you'd think, oh, well, that's ripe for primitive accumulation then because primitive accumulation, when it happened, people just did it. You know, like it wasn't uh, legal other than by the laws of imperialist states to just go around fucking stealing land because you've got guns and those the people there have got sticks. Mm-hmm. It was just violence and then you wrote laws to justify it afterwards. But um, Yeah, but that's what I'm saying would happen. Like going back to the Wild West for a second, the yeah. state was expanding, but there were like outriders before the state who were like, oh, just due to geography and practicalities, the state can't enforce itself on on me here so I can just go and dig a bunch of gold and then and hide it. That was like... That was the gold rush. 
Yeah, you can dig a gold and hide it, but you know when you're digging that gold that because you have been the first person, quote unquote, to find it, you would then be very keen on the state enforcing your right for that gold to be yours or that mine to be yours. Yeah, you're hoping that the state will catch up with you. And when it does, you are now a property owner and you are now well off. Yeah. And, and the, the, the you know the purge stops. Everyone's living within the purge. It's like well, not, <laughs> instead of if the purge was like a day, a time period, it was just like a section of the country that is slowly being enveloped. <laughs> you would still necessarily get the same thing once you've got outriders mm. who've gone to an area and gone. This is resource rich. We can live here. A state of some kind, even if it comes with corporate branding, is going to catch up with you, unless you are in some way going to parlay with it. It's either going to extract from you or it will just build a state around you. So have you ever seen these things where people sell like a certificate and it says you own an acre of the moon? Oh, no, I know about naming stars is as close as I get. There's loads of people selling land rights to the moon. Okay. So there's a guy called Martin Jurgens, and he claims that the entire moon has belonged to his family since 1756. Because the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, presented the moon to Martin Jürgen's ancestor, Arl Jürgen, as a gift for services rendered to the Prussian crown. That's an incredible gift. That's like a ki so, King Canute level gift. And then there's another guy, Robert R. Coles, who used to run a planetarium in New York. He started a company called the Interplanetary Development Corporation. And he's the guy that sells lots of the moon for a dollar an acre. What? That's right. well um, below market value. Uh, yeah, I suppose there's loads of moon. And then, and then there's controversies of like, have people double sold bits of the moon? Yeah, of course um, And there's have. another guy, Dennis Hope. He describes himself as selling extraterrestrial real estate. And he started his business, the Lunar Embassy Commission in 1980. He says he sold 2.5 million acres. And he sells them for $20 an acre. So he's, he's selling them for way higher than... Robert Coles, and he's actually sold, he claims to have sold to Ronald Reagan. I mean, this is probably wild naivety on my part, but there is any chance that these individual moon entrepreneurs are coordinating to ensure that when the people go out to become homesteaders, there aren't two people claiming the same plot. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry to disappoint you, Sean, but I, I think there is not only no coordination, <laughs> but these are three competing claims to moon ownership. Right, so when we all go out to start the massive moon kibbutz or whatever's going to happen up there, <laughs> every home is going to be like three families living on the same acre <laughs> from different parts of the planet who hate each yeah. other. <laughs> <laughs> the war starts from day one. The war starts from day one. And even if you um, if you get there and you're like, oh, wicked, I am the one plot where only I have turned up, yeah. you'll be living in constant fear that secondary and third plot owners, yeah. you know, the, the Jürgen plot owner is just going to come for you. Yeah, if you think the urban density is bad here on Earth, wait until you have to share a moon house <laughs> with two other full families. <laughs> <laughs> but none of these are like recognised, right? None of these claims to ownership of the moon are recognised. They're all just complete novelty things because they're in breach of the Outer Space Treaty. Which one's the Outer Space Treaty? The one that... Uh, uh, 1967 Outer Space Treaty is the no, not subject to national appropriation. But as I've said... This isn't a nation though, is it? Yeah. No, well, yes, but private property can only be enforced by a nation. So what nation is going to enforce these property rights? 
no nation has said that they will back these property rights. This is how multiple people are able to claim rights to it. It has no legal sure, recognition. Sure, nothing backs up the claim because... Because it's just the claim. Yeah, and what else can even back up a claim other than a state or something similar to that? We couldn't just go live in Alton Towers and pitch a tent underneath oblivion. But when we say it's say, up- this is ours now, because it's backed up... It, property rights are backed up by violence. That's what we're saying, right? Violence. So the state is just sort of a, a proxy thing to bridge a gap that we can simplify to say ownership is just backed up by force. Yeah. No force, no ownership. The people who would have control of the moon, whether it be the Jurgens, the Coles, or the Hopes, they would only own the moon to the extent that they could defend it with violence or back it up with violence. So you would need moon cops. You'd need moon cops and moon troops. Are we absolutely ruling out the idea that you can have a communalized society where ownership was just backed up by consensus? Uh, No, I would think that was great because that's socialism. Mm, That's what I'm saying. So we're already (laughs) saying like we're, we're going to the moon and we've already imposed a lot of very, you know, we're being very moon pessimist, I think. The idea that the moon couldn't be a place where all these three competing plot owners just go, okay, well, we all own a third and let's all just make sort of a plot owner's council and we'll just hash it all out. And then it's just backed up by like moon-wide consent. (laughs) I mean, if we're talking about moon homesteading, I don't see any reason why we can't be a little frivolous. Yeah, well, it's it's the commons, isn't it? This is what I'm saying. We were, you know, we were sad because we couldn't get any land because the commons is gone. But the commons is out there, buddy. There's actually more the commons, commons than there. non-commons if we're thinking about it this way. Yeah, well, like way more. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> like look into this, guys. Actually, get on wiki. <laughs> Until we um, until we encounter aliens who go, actually, I own the moon. Um, yeah, and, and we are doing it based on force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a guy who claimed to own an asteroid as well, Greg Nemitz. Uh-huh. He claimed, and it's all claims because you can't. Well, everything's claims, like right? Even here on the terrestrial world, everything's just claims. The only reason that the claims seem a bit more shored up is because you can see the police outside it. <laughs> So you don't well, think yeah, to question it. Exactly. Nemitz, who has no military or cops to back up his, his claim, he reckons he owns an asteroid and NASA landed a probe on it, mm-hmm. right? But they're trespassing on his private property. Yeah. So what, what, what did he do? Well, I'm guessing he didn't go up there and manually extract it. So I'm guessing we're just going to devolve into angry emails. What else can he do? He, uh, very close. He issued NASA an invoice for a parking fine. $20. Okay. I'm on board with this. It's well, it's the best get it's the best chance he's going to get of actually extracting profit from his asteroid ownership because it's working within the confines of like terrestrial legalism. NASA have not paid this fine because they think that he doesn't own the asteroid. They reject his ownership. They reject Nemitz's ownership of the asteroid. Okay, so what's the bare minimum you would need as an individual or even mm. just a small company, like a small vegetable co-op, <laughs> to get a UK state to recognise your ownership of some part of space, let's say an asteroid. But this is the problem. An Earth state cannot recognise it because that would be subject to national appropriation, which would breach the Outer Space Treaty. But I'm not an, I'm not a nation. I know. You know, when we're talking about space, yeah. what counts as land and what counts as an item starts to get kind of fluid because if I threw up enough soil, just soil... <laughs> And fertilizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over a million years, that would coagulate into a sphere. And then, That's the so I've, because- I, I owned all that and I haven't lost what I've owned, right? Yeah. So if that's yep. just turned into like, you know, let's say it's got just an, it's an acre around, I could live on yeah. that. I think like the, the little would prince. Be I could bad. just be the little prince. I don't want NASA coming up and nuking me because I want to be the little prince. 
<laughs> that's, that's not it. fair that's it we figured it out so we, we've nailed it we can do it we can do space exploration we've got oh, a nice space you seem to think we've come to a conclusion yeah no we absolutely what, have what is this it? is we don't need to so the problem is the problem is we couldn't get we couldn't even if we tried to just do the commons in space, it would be very difficult to do. It would not be recognised by any yeah, nation. Yeah, we don't have enough force to back it up. They have enough force that they could just come and overturn it if they had a whim to do that. Oh, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. But legally, in the Outer Space Treaty, I like things that you have sent to space are still owned by you. So we use that loophole, as you've just pointed out, mm. to just very slowly build a planet. Yeah. Done. Or even Th- just... We tricked him. Or even loophole. just send up a carpet and then just put that carpet on the moon. And just be like, I'm just chilling out on my carpet. <gasps> Do you know what I mean? Like a big rug or just a big roll of carpet. Oh my god! It's like um, I think I mentioned this before about someone we know who thinks if you just if you buy a shipping container and stick it in the soil, you can build on that because you just yeah, own the shipping yeah, yeah, container. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we derided that logic before, but maybe in space it actually starts to become a work of genius. Shipping containers. Yeah. No, just carpet. I think shipping containers actually going over the odds. Occam's, ra- well, well, Occam's quite, razor would say ship I'd, a container I'd or just a bit. I like, of- like a roof if I'm in a vacuum of space. You put the you put the walls on the carpet. The only difference between space house and our house is that the carpets don't stop at the skirting board. The, the carpets have to exceed the perimeter of the house. <laughs> but, <laughs> but other than that, it's a normal house. <laughs> well, low gravity, no no oxygen. A few differences there's, there's will problems. Yeah. But again, we weren't addressing them. We were addressing the legal questions. Yeah, and I've just gone off about carpets. Do you know, without having to go to space, aren't there like really blurry ownership laws regarding land when we talk about how far ownership extends upwards and downwards from a plot? Uh, for flight paths so and flight for path, so mining. I think you own like not as high as you'd expect and of course, you need planning mm. rights. So you can't do much with it. Mm. And then beyond that, it's like you're just not allowed here at all. But below the ground, I believe that if you don't interfere with pipes and stuff, your ownership rights extend. Oh, is this America or the UK? I can't remember. But somewhere that was never clarified. So ownership rights going yeah. down just goes into the center of the earth, which I think maybe opens up some interesting possibilities for maybe a Morlock society. I'm sure you've talked about, you've proposed as a, a Morley Morlock society, some sort of subterranean <laughs> civilization before. Yeah, everyone's got to have a thing, you know. <laughs> Morley Morlockism. The only issue, I suppose vitamin D deficiency is maybe an easier problem to solve than having no oxygen or gravity. No, National Sad Lamp Service. Like, <laughs> ro- rolled out day one of Morley Heaven. <laughs> Morley Heaven. <laughs> Well, I think, you know what, right? Because in, in H.G. Wells, the uh, time machine, mm. it, it was sort of a response to a lot of working class people being forced to like live underground a lot because of mining industries and other like yeah, yeah, heavy, yeah, yeah. heavy duty industries. And therefore, the Eloy got to enjoy the earth and fruits of, of the beautiful world, even though like I think he talks a lot about there being loads of sepul- sepulchres and like old graves that no one's tending because everyone's oh, forgotten God. about the past and the dead. But other than <laughs> that, it's like gorgeous. But in reality, the future is actually going to be a scorched, barren wasteland. And actually, the only opportunity for beautification is going to live is going to be a mile under. So if the working classes get on it now, we can be like, hang on, haven't we already made a bipartite society? You're up there with the skin cancer. We're down here with the beautiful ferns and the sad lamps. Geothermal power. Mm-hmm. Geodude. Geodude, that's good. Uh, rock slide, sand shrew. Um, 
Ride on. <laughs> I think we've devolved the combo quite a lot. <laughs> well, I just think, as someone who is living entirely indoors, I get a majority of my sunshine through a pane of glass. Yeah. It's not going to be that different to just living underground and getting a majority of my sunshine through a pane of glass, through a pane of glass with a light bulb in it. It's not going to be that different from a horrible global pandemic and lockdown. And it's not, well, hang on, it's not going to be that different from living in space, which is your proposal. It's not my proposal! <laughs> what have we just been talking about? You've just been saying, you know, it's Earth pessimism, it's not going to happen here, but maybe it can happen on the moon, let's get going, we just need to work out our entry plan. Oh, I was just doing a springboard for talking about how the market can't exist without the state. Yeah, not me. I didn't engage with any of the higher order concepts. I spent the whole thing thinking this was a battle plan for our own colonization. And uh, do you know what? There's a, um, there's a side of the moon it. that's like hidden. There's like a stealth side of the moon. What? Do you know that there's like the hot side and cold side of the moon? Right. Pink Floyd's cold stealth side of the moon. You, you could live there and then you'd be basically undetectable. Right. You'd be freezing, but you'd be safe. <laughs> But you know what? If we do end up living underground or living in little divots and stuff, mm. even if that doesn't pan out long term and the rich eventually come and take over these areas that we've dug our little holes in, they might at least afford us like a life as just a hermit in their garden to make it look interesting or cool. Until we look sad. Until we look sad and then we're turfed out into actual space. <laughs> <laughs> Until they shut off the sad lights and we get seasonal affective disorder. Our last shift as some kind of garden-dwelling jester is that we get <laughs> rocketed outside of the stratosphere to burn under the all-consuming cold of space. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Jack there contemplating contemplating dying in space <laughs> by going Yes? What's primitive accumulation? Hmm? You said a few times in the combo earlier, I just thought I'd be useful to clarify. Uh, okay, so what do you think it is? Well, I know what accumulation is. That's when you gather stuff up, yes. Uh, the squiggles in my wood accumulate nuts. There's uh, lots of mold has accumulated on my head. Why is, why is that? Oh, I'm a, I'm a mold head. My head's made of mold. Okay, so accumulation is gathering things, making them yours. What about primitive? Well, um... Primitive's like a caveman, like the old ways of doing things. So it's something that happened before now? Well, primitive also seems kind of racist, but I'm sure they'd be that. Uh, what? Yeah, primitive is what empires call the people they conquer, someone different from them. Yeah, that does seem bad. Uh, some people think a better term for primitive accumulation might be primary accumulation. Yeah, I'm more comfortable with that. So what do you think primary accumulation is? Mm, I think primary accumulation is when you collect something up, like squirrel, so it's yours and no one else's, and it's something that happened in the past. Yeah, that's a pretty good explanation. Primary accumulation is the process by which pre-capitalist modes of production, such as feudalism or slave societies, are transformed into the capitalist mode of production. Well, I feel like I nailed it. Yeah, you pretty much did. Thanks for listening to Mando's and giving me a lift through your enchanted wood. Hope you, uh, hope you sort that mould out. I love molds. I'm made of molds. I'm a mold head. So primitive accumulation is uh, really important for understanding where capitalism came from. Capitalism isn't natural like rivers or the wind or mold growing on your ancient four-foot head. Capitalism is a system of private ownership and wage labour driven by profit enforced by a state. Check out all the way back in Mando's episode one for more on that. Primitive accumulation is the process of taking things that exist outside the logic of capitalism and bringing them in. 
And what's that you got there, mate? A few acres of common land? Oop. <laughs> Looks like I've built a fence around it. You just got primitive accumulated, sucker. So that's just one example of primitive accumulation, the enclosure of the common land. Common land was a, you know, common under feudalism. It was owned collectively through traditional rights, such as use. Families might use common land for centuries to graze cattle or collect firewood, and that use of it defined their right. But because they didn't have a bit of paper that said it was theirs, it was very easy to take off them. This is why anarchists have that phrase, have that slogan, property is theft. Once common land was enclosed, its use was restricted to the owner. You can only use it if you're working for the owner. Given that land is a pretty important means of production, it's the way we get food, what enclosure is is the privatisation of the means of production. Under feudalism, peasants would work the fields, keep some of their produce to themselves, give some to the Lord. But now they keep nothing. The Lord keeps everything. They sell it in a market, get some money, they give some of that money to the worker, and they keep the rest for themselves. And that's profit. That's capitalism. As E.P. Thompson puts it, Enclosure was a plain enough case of class robbery played according to fair rules of the property and law laid down by a parliament of property owners. The social violence of enclosure consisted in the drastic, total imposition upon the village of capitalist property. Even key liberal philosophers acknowledge this, like Adam Smith writes that accumulation of stock must, in the nature of things, be previous to the division of labour. You don't get a working class without primitive accumulation. John Stuart Mill wrote that the social arrangements for modern Europe commenced from a distribution of property which was the result not of just partition or acquisition by industry, but of conquest and violence. Copy and paste this process across the planet, and that's the process by which capitalism came to dominate the world. From the Highland clearances in Scotland, the East India Company in India in the 1700s, or recent land grabs in the developing world by South Korean corporations, it's all the same thing. Whoa, 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 Jack. Primitive accumulation is still going on today. Hello again, Moldhead. What are you doing here? I'm always here. I thought primitive accumulation happened a long time ago. Then, once everything was uh, accumulated, capitalism was everywhere, it's done. Well, yeah, I kind of suggested that by simplifying it as a jumping off point. But basically, as long as there's capitalism, primitive accumulation is kind of always happening. It's always there. Like you, old lord. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Capitalism needs constant growth, and it's always accumulating things. Like, we've been talking about land, but that's just one example. DNA is just natural, right? but companies have copyrighted DNA sequences. So if you're a charity researching a cure for a disease and you think a certain DNA sequence might help, you're probably gonna have to pay the owner who's got the copyright on it. Companies like Monsanto have copyrighted the DNA of seeds. Have you given your DNA to any companies? Um, have you checked that you own the copyright to your DNA sequence? Because uh, that could be a problem. Another example is research. You ever try to access research when you're not enrolled at a uni? It's a nightmare. Hope you got 200 quid a year. Wait a minute, that research is done by academics, often publicly funded, often as part of a collective process. Yeah, looks like they just got primitive accumulated. When I was talking to Sean earlier, we kind of simplified things by talking as if the accumulation of land is a done deal. Capitalism's got all of Earth, so we have to go to the moon. But it's actually still ongoing. Like, there's a lot of land to be grabbed. Land grabs for food and agriculture continue to grow, and more and more land is in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Just some examples from the last decade. 30,000 hectares acquired in Nigeria by US company Dominion Farms for rice. A single Indian corporation bought up 10 times that in Ethiopia. 
One institution that's heavily implicated in land grabbing is a little thing called the European Union. So the EU encourages land grabs in two ways. Firstly, directly, when corporations based in the EU take over land. This, by the way, isn't just barefaced evil corporations, it's also pension funds. So funds like the Danish PKA, the Swedish AP2 and the Dutch APG, which are all from those cuddly social democracies to the left of the UK, they all made investments in farmland in developing countries. And investments is an interesting word there because it makes people think of uh, improving things. But no, it's buying them to sit on them. You know, they're betting on land prices going up so they can sell it off later. Second way the EU is implicated in land grabbing is for its policies, which encourage the transformation of land into a commodity. They push primitive accumulation. Land ownership is super concentrated in the EU. Take Germany, for example. It had a, a total of 1.2 million separate farms in 1967, and that shrunk to just 300,000 by 2010. It's been accumulated, right? After the collapse of the Berlin Wall, many Eastern European farmers went bankrupt as EU-subsidised agricultural products flooded in, the state acting hand-in-hand with big business. Financial speculators and just big agricultural businesses bought up the land. Now, today, the biggest farms in the EU, the ones with 100 hectares and above, only represent 3% of the total number of farms, but control 50% of all farmland. So that's accumulation and land grabbing inside the EU. What about outside? So the EU is the world's largest importer of food, with two-thirds of what it consumes coming from outside. Basically, this block of wealthy countries can drive prices down, getting farmers in developing countries to compete against each other to drive down prices for their huge market. A lot of the food that gets imported into the EU isn't directly eaten by people. The EU imports 75% of its livestock feed. This drives the huge soy monocultures in South America. That's 20 million hectares and has had a huge social and ecological cost. Another EU policy which fuels land accumulation is the Everything But Arms Agreement, which basically says the only imports the EU will tax from poor countries is weapons. But the effect was basically a subsidy to agricultural corporations. Like the sugarcane companies that did a whole bunch of land grabbing and human rights violations in Cambodia. Then there's the Renewable Energy Directive. European demand for biofuels brought about by this policy caused the palm oil boom in Southeast Asia, with millions of acres of ancient rainforest destroyed to make way for plantations. <laughs> you know, you'd think renewable energy and restricting arms deals would be good. It's almost as if reform and capitalism through the state is limited and we should try something else. Maybe we should go to space! Well, Moldhead, I was thinking of something else. Going into the centre of the earth instead of living underground. No, we've, we've been through this. Stalinism. No, no. Stalinism. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Six. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all Last year, YouGov ran a poll to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, asking, if it was free and safe return could be guaranteed, would you want to go to the moon? 
I am sad and crying to inform you that a majority of respondents declined. I realise there are a lot of problems in the world that dwarf this one, but I nevertheless feel a slug of melancholy slither down my spine to learn that I share my island with such wanderlustless homunculi. Reasons for not attending the moon. Not enough to do, 23%. Would rather visit places on Earth, 10%. Reject premise that safe return can be guaranteed, 9%. Who are these people? Slating the moon for having too few attractions. Would turn down an impossible once-in-a-lifetime experience in favour of going somewhere they could go anyway. It's not an either-or, you don't have to live on the moon. You can go to Skegness after you get back. People who don't even have the imaginative faculties to go along with the question. They can fully imagine themselves going up to the moon. They can even imagine themselves having quite a nice time. But no matter how they try, in their mind's eye, they are constantly dying on re-entry. Who are these people? They are the elderly. Every other age group is champing at the bit for a taste of that sweet grey orb. But the over 55s are so overwhelmingly unkeen on going to the moon that it completely skews the results. And you know, I'll meet them halfway. Fair enough. It's the moon. It's Hassel. We'll miss Emmerdale. It's just personally, I cannot imagine myself for a moment not instantaneously accepting an offer to go to the moon. I feel like it could be life-changing to visit space. Is this the insurmountable cultural gap between young and old? Is it naive to make bucket lists of exciting things we'd like to do before we die, when instead we need lists of exciting things we'd like to do before we get to the age where we have got no desire to do anything we haven't previously done before? And it's not like being old is incompatible with dreaming big. For elderly conservatives in the UK, the romantic dream du jour is that of nostalgia nationalism, a desperate desire to impossibly roll back political reality and return the country to a misremembered, idealised 1950s Britain. But the thing is, if you were actually living in the 1950s, your dream would be, more likely than not, to go to the moon. If there is anything to be taken from Brexit fever, it's that even the most morose corners of British demography can still be motivated by a huge, implausible dream. Because everyone deep down turns on some kind of dream, some elusive shape halfway between a value system and an idealised future. But why can't these dreams just be plucked from the annals of childhood fantasy? Digging for treasure, blasting to Mars, playing a quick couple of rounds of Jumanji before bed. When I was a child, I desperately wanted to be a squirrel. It's not going to happen. I realise that now, but it does me no harm to think about it now and then. And if there is an argument that it does that I haven't heard yet, then my new position is that it definitely doesn't hurt anyone else. Perhaps reactionary conservatism just isn't compatible with moon dreams, because if you're mega keen on witnessing a desolate and lifeless landscape, you can begin working on one of those from the comfort of your own home. And just for the sake of completionism, let's just cover the other excuses on the list. Coming in at 9%, we've got no point. Uh, 7% takes too long to get there. 6% I'm too old to go to the moon. 5% I'm scared of the prospect of going to the moon. Another 5% fear slash dislike of flying. And 4% 
the most reasonable but also the least represented excuse for moon refusal going. The resources we'd be putting into this free and safe moon travel would be better spent on earthly concerns. Mandatory Distribution Power was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean, with additional music by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a review on iTunes. It does help other people find the podcast. And uh, don't drink bleach. Do drink Space Pepsi from the core of an illegally mined asteroid. It's our only income right now. <laughs> <laughs>